0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. I'm Samantha Long, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jonathan Waterlow about his new book, It's Only a Joke, Comrade Humor, Trust, and Everyday Life Under Stalin, 1928 to 1941. So, Jonathan, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure.
1: Thank you very much, first of all, for having me on the show um, and for taking the time to dig into my book. I I appreciate it. Um, So I'm from uh, Edinburgh, though my accent wouldn't make you think that. And I ended up going and doing this PhD down at Oxford University, and I spent I guess the best part of four years doing the PhD, which was on this subject. And then I spent a bunch more years, did a bunch more research to turn it in the book, uh, into the book, which we're going to get into today. Um, I'm happy to give you any more info about me.
0: (laughs) So why, why did you decide to study jokes?
1: Yeah. Um, at first I, I seriously questioned that myself because it was quite difficult to do, um, it kind of started when. Um, Soviet history came alive for me when I was first studying it as an undergraduate when I was learning about popular opinion. And when I read those sorts of books like Sarah Davis and Sheila Fitzpatrick's books, um, I found occasionally there were um, jokes in there. And yet they would pop up and sort of disappear. And I really wanted to know more about that. I felt like that the jokes were often treated as though this is just a little bit of creative seasoning. This is a little light relief or they were understood as, okay, this means that some people were clearly against the regime and they didn't like it, um, and that was it. And I thought, well, there's more sort of weird sense of paradox going on for me. I thought, these jokes don't sound like outright resistance. They don't sound like people are brainwashed either, so we're not falling into binaries of brainwashing or people loving the regime, but it was more sort of indeterminate state where people are kind of trying to make sense of what's going on by asserting themselves into the narrative and retelling things to reflect their experience. So I thought, okay, the place is contradictory. It's confusing in the 1930s, but people are always trying to make sense or at least some kind of operational, um, way to make sense of their everyday lives and realities. Um, and I thought, well, in jokes, there's often, um, a sense of weighing up, different value systems. Something tends to come off the worst or some, or something or someone tends to come off the better in a joke. So I thought this is going to be an interesting way to see what frames of reference are people actually calling on? Who do they think of in the jokes as them and us in these kind of micro stories about their everyday experiences? And humor lets us play with different versions of reality. We can challenge norms. We can temporarily invent things. We also can get this giddy thrill of power of being the storyteller of the situation for once, especially if we don't have much power to dictate and determine our lives uh, in an everyday way. And the extra factor was, I thought, how, why and how are people sharing these jokes? Because if this was a, a terrifying society, especially in the late thirties, in which people are denouncing each other left, right and centre, who could they possibly trust? And why would they make the decision to do it to other people? I thought, is this going to reveal a story of just joke tellers who were kind of foolish, essentially? Or was it going to reveal that people actually had a lot more possibility for trusting each other and that jokes would be a thermometer to try and take stock of what those trust bonds were?
0: Okay, so how difficult was it to find sources and contextualize these jokes? I mean, I've seen some jokes show up, for example, um, on NKVD reports about the Constitution, but they're very few that I've seen.
1: Yeah. Um, in fact, the general advice I received, um, from most people before I set off was th- <laughs> this, isn't going to work. I think you should try and do something else. Um, there are legends of the FSB archive having a whole section of political jokes. Uh, an archivist, uh, at Ergas B told me, um, that I should go and check it out. But needless to say, they, they didn't let me in. Um, First of all, though, I knew that there was a widespread culture of joke telling because there are so many anthologies that have been published since. And those anthologies have problems because you don't know who was speaking and to whom or if it really was from that particular time period. But it gave me a sense that this was the, the evidence that came through the cracks that couldn't work for my purposes of trying to understand a particular context and understand particular people's lives. But it was like the smoking gun that something was there. Um, and since then, uh, an amazing researcher called Misha Melnichenko has published this colossal anthology of um, Anecdoti where in which he's cross-referenced uh, all source bases that he could possibly find to try and show Uh, for sure which jokes were current at which time rather than being uh, remembered later or claimed to be from the Soviet Union when in fact it was amongst emigre populations. So that came out after I did my research but uh, it's an incredible source for people who want to look it up. So anyway for me I thought first I'm going to try and follow the trail left by the people who studied popular opinion. So I looked at these reports on the mood of the population um, Svodki, they're often called. And they were they were quite useful, but it was an awful lot of reading to find just very occasional jokes. Sometimes it seems like the report writers thought the jokes were particularly important or particularly suspicious, or maybe they just enjoyed recording jokes and you'll get pages of them all in a row. Um, but most of the time it was very rare. So I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And then I got a tip off from someone about a particular database that's in in Garf, the main state archive of the Russian Federation, which were the criminal case files of people prosecuted under the notorious article 5810, anti-Soviet agitation. And this was the early stages of any digitization work being done there. So it was just a big Excel spreadsheet. And I typed in anecdote, and hundreds and hundreds of cases came back. Um, So that was that was striking gold. It it gave me uh, so much more depth and insight into individual cases um, with lots of additional data about how it played out in court, what different witnesses to this joke crime had to say. And then I got to uh, I looked at some other things, too, like contemporary diaries. And I think it will probably come up later. But I I looked also at the uh, the Harvard interview project on the Soviet social system. Uh, which is done in the early 1950s, uh, which allowed me to look at examples where people hadn't been denounced and arrested, because I didn't just want to have sources that were essentially of the, through the, the lens purely of the state and only of where people had made some sort of mistake and misjudgment that had landed them in jail. So it was all of those sources over a long period of time trying to pull together enough material.
0: Would you mind telling our listeners what you mean by anecdote? Because it's not the same word as anecdote in English.
1: Yes. So, Anecdote in English tends to be more like, I will tell you a little story about something that happened, whereas anecdote in Russian is more closely associated with a joke of a political nature. And it can be a little call and response. It can be a little bit more of a story, but it, it is more joke and more specifically political joke than anecdote in English.
0: So you start your book out talking about jokes mocking the Soviet leadership, particularly the, um, I guess, patron saint of my city, Sergei Kirov. We have two Kirovs here, um, which you mentioned were often vulgar or even pornographic. What sort of jokes were common about the leadership? And how widespread do you estimate this behavior was?
1: Yeah, the the question of how widespread it was is is a difficult one because like most uh, any studies of popular opinion, it's it's pretty much impossible to quantify. and even when you have Gallup opinion polls, it's always an extrapolation. Um, but we do see, I found, the same kinds of jokes appearing across the Soviet Union from all sections of society and including party members. So there's an awful lot of places the same jokes are taking place. I can't make a claim about representativeness and so on. But uh, the way I think about it is, well, I would think the question is why, why wouldn't they be telling jokes? And I'm sure we'll get into the question of the danger of doing it. But if there's enough examples around that people were doing this and the fact that we know it is a way that all people, try to cope with difficult circumstances and their daily frustrations, I think it's, I would certainly say, I think it's incredibly widespread, but it's not something I can prove to you on paper with statistics. Um, as to common jokes relating to uh, the the top leaders, you're absolutely right, they can be pretty intense and vicious. Um, a lot of it was... Well, I in that chapter you're referring to, I call it Kirov's Carnival, where it's this outburst of carnivalesque, uncrowning and uh, degrading mockery where people joke that because it's Kirov's uh, funeral coming up, they should go to the canteen because they'll be serving Kirov's brains, which will sure, surely be delicious or people simply want to have a party on that day and argue very fiercely and sarcastically with party organizers that they're going to deal with this and celebrate the way they want. Celebration obviously wasn't the way it was meant to pan out, it was meant to be very sad. Um, Others refused to go by saying, well you don't give me any fancy clothes to go to a funeral, I've only got these terrible um, threadbare clothes and boots, I can't possibly go. So in part it's avoidance tactics and just trying to um, make a point about how they're living um, and place that up against the demands for certain behaviour that the, the regime wants to put on them. Um, but I think the central theme of how people joke about the leadership is they try and bring them down to an everyday level. And that could be making jokes of a sexual nature, like saying that uh, Stalin catches uh, crabs from sleeping with a prostitute, and he doesn't know how to get rid of them, nobody can help him, so he goes to a doctor, um, the doctor can't help, and then he's advised by someone, announce that you're going to make it a collective farm, and everything will flee the scene. And Jokes like that manage to puncture both his central policy, but also make Stalin very, very human and lesser than the joke teller. Um, People do this in a way, it's an assertion of power, but on the other hand, I think it's quite an admission of weakness in their everyday lives that the only way that they can find some sort of domination or superiority over the leaders is to make very physical, crude jokes about sex, about cutting them up and eating them, uh, about imagining them in compromising scenarios or simply changing uh, the T in Stalin for an R to Sralin, which makes him not the man of steel but the man of shit. And uh, that kind of behavior is attempting to assert superiority. And sometimes the jokes are asserting that the Bolshevik leaders are completely insane. They're not the funniest jokes. But again, it's this attempt to suggest that whilst the the leaders have got complete power over them, the people ultimately still know better about the reality of of their lives. And if they tell it in this joke form, They can pat themselves on the back and say we know how it really is we're laughing now but then they still have to go back to work the next day
0: i don't know i think the crab collective farm joke's actually pretty funny
1: oh yeah i like that in fact i i really like a lot of the jokes the trouble is that unless you're immersed in the period i end up people ask me what's my favorite joke and i realize almost all of them i'm going to need to give a little crib notes on soviet history first and then no one's really ready to laugh afterwards
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you have to explain it, it isn't sort of funny, but I study collective farms, so I think it's hilarious.
1: You're my perfect audience.
0: So you also mentioned things that are not exactly jokes but things like um, taking newspapers reporting on Kirov's death and using them for a uh, cigarette paper as a humorous and subversive act. Why do you assume that's humorous and subversive rather than just some guy grabbing whatever's handy to make a cigarette?
1: Yeah I think that I think that's a really good point and it's a really good note of caution to sound. Um, I try in the book to make the distinction um that things like this actions like that which could also include reading slogans in a sarcastic voice or hanging portraits of the leaders in the toilets of your workplace they could always be done intentionally as an act of sarcastic uh, subversion but you needed to be in on the joke to think of it that way. And that, that's partly how a lot of humour manages to survive between the cracks. Like to some people, a portrait of Stalin in the toilets is just another portrait of Stalin. To other people, it could be a joke. So to many, it would it would be invisible. Um, but I think that there's enough outright admissions and notes in diaries, in interviews, or in the fact that in in the official records where I'm reading it, people are laughing about this, or even the, the agents who record um, the notes, They even if they don't like the joke, they tend to recognise and explicitly state that it was a joke. They'll say, this was done with irony, or this was done with somebody laughing. So it's not that every act like this that we could read symbolically was done consciously in that way, but there is a possibility, there was always an open possibility for it. Um, and coming back to, to Kirov, um, an example of that that I use as a, a little bit of a motif drawing on a, an article that Jan Plamper put out is that there was a statue uh, erected to Kirov after his murder. And he's kind of got one hand lowered, slightly pointing forwards. And people realise that if you turn and you stood at a certain point, the statue would look like the, the finger was a penis. So the statue is just a statue not everyone's going to look at it that way but there is a possibility and the possibility you can share with people that you trust enough to do so that you could choose to look at look at it in this direction it's like the the symbol is not uh, cannot be it can't just have one meaning and the state can't control that meaning which is what it wanted to do but there is the possibility and that's what jokes are all about of looking at things in a different way um in a way that makes sense to you or achieves some kind of psychological and emotional release for you?
0: So let's talk about, you know, the big daddy of the Soviet period, Stalin. Was Stalin the common butt of jokes? And if so, how does this challenge the idea of this cult of personality around Stalin? He was sort of an untouchable godlike figure.
1: Yeah, Big Daddy Stalin. Um in so the the Stalin cult is i guess a lot of listeners to this podcast will know it it turns up in pretty much all textbooks i had to look through current school textbooks in the uk and there's always a direct if there's not a chapter there's a little box out on the page and saying there's a cult it tends to be wheeled out as a kind of shorthand reason for why there was no mass scale resistance to the regime to explain popular quiescence in spite of all the cruelties and hardships that they had to endure. It's the image of ultimately in the end, however bad things were, there was a good Tsar or we all love big brother. And the image is as though Stalin sits benignly above politics and is seen, like you said, practically as a god. Um, In reality, however, I found he was popular enemy number one when it came to jokes, he was the key target, the leader mocked the most and relentlessly and ruthlessly. Um, And at first I thought, well, does this mean the Stalin cult didn't matter? Did it mean that it wasn't as real as we think? Did we just read too many issues of Pravda and internalize the, the repetitious appearance of Stalin as the person to be thanked for everything? Was that just the propaganda and we read it that way? and i thought well no it's more that the cult was very real but in some ways it's not a good thing to be made completely synonymous with soviet power it meant that he became a lightning rod for frustration because he was such he was the prominent figurehead if he's everywhere if you're being told that every part of your life you need to thank stalin and there are plenty of jokes about this they then turn to blame Stalin for everything as well. If he's the the captain of the ship, then when things are going badly, you're going to go and blame the captain of the ship. So in a way, the jokes confirm the prevalence of the Stalin cult, but they also mock that prevalence, and it provides a platform for Stalin to rise above um, the other leaders, but that makes him the easiest target too.
0: Is this really surprising considering most world leaders are the object of some sort of mockery. You know, Donald Trump is the subject of so, so many memes. I assume in the UK, Theresa May is also the butt of many jokes. You know, you have uh, the Chinese leader being compared with Winnie the Pooh, and he then bans Winnie the Pooh. Um, so is this in any way really surprising?
1: <laughs> you know, I don't I don't think it's surprising. And I think in some ways, a lot of what my, my book presents shouldn't be surprising. I just think that All the same, for the past maybe couple of decades, the focus of our historical inquiries has led us into modes of thinking where we've internalized the notion that the Stalin cult rose above everything and people, because they all wept, it seemed, at Stalin's funeral, that they had come to love Big Brother or that they were implacable opponents and secretly hated and resented him. But the reality is when, when you draw that parallel with Trump or other modern day leaders, we can think, well, that's not how people tend to be. We tend to be critical when leaders do things that we don't like, even if we don't have to face the same sanctions uh, that Soviet citizens under Stalin did. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise. But I think from all that I've read and the conversations that I've had, that we've come to perhaps accept too much the idea that there was the cult and therefore it limited the possibilities for how people would think and talk about Stalin, be it through fear or because they really had internalised so much of the ideology that they would think there is a good Tsar and the system is being corrupted by the people below him.
0: Do you think it also comes back to the trend in the profession to see the Soviet Union as the other in some way, that they are not like us? So laughing at their leaders would be something that we wouldn't expect?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to phrase what I say cautiously because I certainly don't want to sound as though like everybody, everybody before has not seen this this way. Um I think that there are, there are trends, and, and I think that one of the trends, not just in Soviet history, is that when we look at people in the past, because we can't directly talk to them or go and stand in their shoes very easily, even through all the source material we might have, we tend to treat them rather differently from how we treat ourselves, especially or particularly when they are living in periods that seem so dramatically different to ours. Because it's very hard to think, what what would it be like if I was living in Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia? And so I think we start thinking, these are terribly special in different circumstances. Therefore, I'm going to assume that people are going to have extraordinary and very different reactions and responses to them. But I think at the, the core of my book, and humor is a great way into this because it is this great human universal, is to say, no, People try to, people who have the same kinds of toolkits, you use the tools in different ways. There's different, I guess, variations or brands of the tools that you have. But they use tools and tactics, psychological and social, to deal with the extraordinary. But the tools are very similar to how we deal with the ordinary. Same way we might tell a joke about Trump, much less is on the line when we do so. But in the same way, people under the most repressive regimes will also tell that joke. It's just that I hope that by looking at this particular tool, I can it's only helped me and I don't I hope that it will help other people to try and see the more the closeness of the human reality of these people's experience and not to imagine or not to believe that we cannot imagine what it was like.
0: So you also discuss big policy events such as five-year plans, collectivization, mass repression, labor laws, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact as all being targets of jokes as well. Hmm. What sort of jokes were made about these policy events and what do they tell us about the popular perception of these policies?
1: So they're they're quite different. Um, I mean there's a certain tone that carries through a lot of these jokes which is often very very dark which uh appeals to me that's my kind of sense of humor so um i i certainly could see the the connecting thread between them but the five-year plans a big theme is this idea that uh It it runs counter to the narrative, which is that this is a, a period of massive, rapid industrialization. There's a focus on speed, 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 speed. Do the five year plan in four years. We need to break all targets and so on. And the jokes instead dwell on the sense of endlessness of it, especially because one five year plan cascades into the next five year plan. So there's very little sense of completion. So one of the, I guess, one of the simplest jokes uh, that I found about it is more of a chastushka, which is a little bit like a a rhyming uh, ditty or song. And my translation goes, bread gone, meat gone, the five-year plan is 10 years long. And... That was contrasted to the narrative of speed because whilst that's what's being told, people's experience is standing endlessly in line to try and get basic foodstuffs and being told that the future is just around the corner. They're working themselves to death and yet nothing seems to be changing for them. So that's kind of a theme with the five-year plan. With the collectivization, you mentioned it's, it's much darker. Um, and in many ways, the jokes that I found it's quite hard to feel the humor. Um, it's extremely um, gallows humor in tone. So just say a one liner would be an agronomist went to study the situation in Ukraine. People found only one single bone of his skeleton thereafter. And I can see the joke, but it's not a very it's not a very good one. it's not it's not exactly uplifting. and there are there are other ones. Which are chastushki, which are essentially focusing on um, the fact that there is no food and people are dying, and it's almost like a statement. And I thought, where's the humour gone here? And I thought, well, I guess it's not just the content, but the way that people are telling them. If they're telling a chastushka, which would be sung, they're still—they're not just repeating the deadened statement of "we are all suffering and dying." They are putting it forward in a way which allows them some sort of assertion of agency and an ability to create a psychological distance to it. When you sing a song about terrible things happening, you're still singing a song. It's like the question has not been closed and life is still continuing. And if people are telling these as jokes, we've got to assume that even if it's not really working for us to get it, it's doing something for them that they are Um, still sharing it as a joke and still laughing about it. I mean there's um, jokes circulating in the gulag and jokes in Auschwitz that have been recorded too, that even if they are of the bleakest nature, um, I mean that's part of the point, they're of the bleakest nature because they're in the bleakest conditions and jokes are a way of addressing the thing that's right in front of you which is very very disturbing but can't be ignored. So that leads into you asked about jokes about the, the repressions or the great terror, inverted commas. And people were joking about that whilst the mass arrests are happening. And I think it, it, can, it surprised me. I think it could surprise a lot of people that people, that Soviet citizens could be joking about mass arrests as they unfold. But I think in part that's because the term the great terror just because it's such an evocative label has led us to internalize a sense that that meant people were living in terror. They were terrified at all times and were struck mute by that terror. And Karl Schlögel's book, Moscow 1937, has given us a very different version of the the variety of experiences that people could still be having in 1937, like walks in Gorky Park or scientific conferences or all sorts of things. But his book, I thought I thought it was a, a fascinating book, but it was as though that was the parallel track that ran alongside the mass arrests, and they didn't seem to come together, whereas I felt a lot of what humour does is it brings together the incongruity and comments on it, that we're being told one version of events, these, this beautiful future we're working towards. But this is my personal daily reality. And the absurdity of the difference lends itself immediately to humor. So, when people are people are telling jokes about people being arrested for telling jokes, they can't not comment on it because the intensity and absurdity of it is so uh, persistent in their minds. So, I would say one joke from the terror is: Who, who, is, who lives in the USSR? One friend and many enemies of the people. So we can we can guess who the the single friend is um, and the Nazi-Soviet pact. That had its own particular tone, which uh, I, I couldn't have predicted. There was a sense of mutual suffering there with um, the people who were in the countries in, in the Baltics being annexed after the pact that seemed to be a key bit, as well as frustration and confusion that the great enemy of Nazi Germany had suddenly become a friend. People made sarcastic comments that, well, it, it's, it's wonderful for our brothers and sisters in Western Ukraine and Belarussia now that we freed them. If a kilogram of sugar was worth kopecks before, now it's worth 100 rubles.
0: That's kind of funny too, in a sick way.
1: I mean, that's kind of the core, like trying to understand why it was funny for them rather than judging whether or not we think it's in good taste. Sometimes that's the challenge with this material.
0: So you talk a lot about the concept of cross-hatching in your book. What exactly is this and why is it important for understanding Soviet jokes?
1: Yeah, so I'd definitely be interested to know what, what your thoughts were on that. My, my idea was to, it came from a novel I was reading. Um, Cross-hatching is actually a drawing technique Um, where so hatching is if you draw parallel lines and then say they're horizontal then you get some vertical lines and you make that and they cross together and they can create this incredible sense of three-dimensionality and texture and the idea of the the metaphor is to suggest that we need to steer our focus away from an either or zero-sum approach To how people understood and experienced their lives in this period. So if one set of hatching is the everyday experience people have of hardships and shortages and broken promises, then the vertical lines of ideology are all the promises, all the exciting things, all the positives that they're told are meant to exist, but don't. And it's not that these things constantly are in battle and are triumphing over each other. It's not that people go into everyday life and think, I believe everything that the Soviet uh, government is telling me, or they say, I believe nothing that the Soviet government tells me. Instead, they're they're experiencing and trying to make sense of both ideology and practical reality all the time. And they're trying to find, which is why I like the the metaphor, they're trying to find meaningful patterns in the two of them. They might like some of the ideological parts, they might be annoyed, by others, so one of the one of the central dynamics of the uh, of the jokes that I found is this what I call wishing it would work. People mock the failures of the regime 's promises rather than the promises themselves, so they make fun of it, but they also rather wish that most of these things would come true um, or to give a different angle on this, you have to People use a mixture of old values and folkloric language combined with speaking Bolshevik to the regime. They don't simply decide, now I have to play the role. Many people don't. They don't decide, I have to play the role of the good Soviet citizen. They might make arguments based in religious language, and then they might make arguments based um, in Soviet language, because both of these are real frames of reference for them. And they're not simply cancelling each other out but can be complementary in the way that they they come together and in in simple ways that could mean that you have a nice easter Coolidge pastry on the 1st of may the regime's not going to like that but like like uh, we know when you try and replace one set of holidays in the calendar with official holidays people tend to want to celebrate both and My point is not, is that we shouldn't interpret this as some kind of self-conscious resistance to the new regime, but to recognize instead that people are trying to make their way through it and find a way in which their life is meaningful, where they can weave together both the old and the new. And in the process of that, they're creating something, something entirely new. Um, This sort of thing has, has been given names before, like hybridity. But I found when I looked into those theories, I thought, well, well, how is it hybrid? Like, I understand that it's hybrid, but I'd like to understand the, the details. And that's what I try to develop and explore in the book. Or another term that people like to use is Eigensinn, this this German word, um, which even the originator of the word Auflutke, it from what I've seen, it takes him about two hours to explain what it means. So. I wanted to put forward a different word, I, I don't know if I've explained it very well right now, uh, but I hope at least in the book that um, it's a useful way of trying to understand that things are official and unofficial, values and experiences are being mixed together to create something that people hope makes sense or want to make sense, rather than it being this constant battle between the two. But I, I would very much like to know if it, if it made sense to you or if you think it's a good idea.
0: It certainly made sense to me. I'm currently working on a book manuscript on Ryoan level um, officials in the Kirov region. And they certainly, everyday life for them is this cross hatching where they have to take the mixture of what political directives and everyday reality. You know, a lot of these groups are vastly outnumbered. You know, there's maybe 72 um, communists in the entire district and, you know, like 470 kulaks. So that limits what they can do with these policies. And it's interesting for me that a lot of my guys, and they're all men, all of them, uh, ignore a lot of stuff that comes from uh, Moscow because it contradicts what they can physically do in their daily reality. Um, For example, following the 36th Constitution, uh, they're told to respect people's rights and stop conducting illegal searches and seizures and to stop taking people's property and selling it for tax arrears. They do neither because they need money. They're not getting proper funding. These people are often two or three months behind on their salary and they see it as a way to break the back of the uh, individual smallholders who they genuinely fear and who have been re-enfranchised by Stalin and are now asking for things like churches to be opened to get their property that was decouled back and uh, things like, some of them are joining the local rural Soviets and stuff. So I see this cross hatching on a, a district level and on an everyday level very often out here in the countryside.
1: Yeah, I think the, the religious uh, aspect is a really great example and uh, where I think our instinct or a lot of histories of the of religion under the Soviet Union have been written um, by people who who tell this as a story of oppression because they' they're writing from the position of of being part of those oppressed religious people. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, every expression of wanting to have religious observance, is saying and therefore i hate the soviet union and i i like nothing about it whatsoever so it's a, a great example with the with the stalin constitution that where there's this promise of of toleration or saying that everything belongs to the people then the people say well then i want my church back open it's this this blending of the the two systems together or in some muslim territories this Soviet ideology blends quite nicely with traditional Muslim community and cultural practices. And they say they're upholding the Stalin constitution or the values of the Soviet Union um, through the course of going about their day-to-day religious activities.
0: I, I think this is a perfectly normal way to look at things because people do this all the time. They take what is useful in their daily life from the state. They take what's useful from older traditional methods and they mix it together and come up with something that works for them.
1: Yeah. I think what I hope to contribute with the idea of cross hatching or the way that I've tried to sketch it out in the book is that for many people have noticed this kind of mixing and matching, but it tends to be described as a gray zone. And I think it's, it was anything but gray. That's where things actually came to life for people. It's where they find a way between the old and the new, or the things that they want versus the restrictions that are available. And that's where in practice, they create what is their everyday life. And that's not just a confused blur where they they don't recognize contradictions. They're rather trying to find ways in which the contradictions make some sort of sense to them.
0: And I would agree with you that most people probably live at the confluence of these different narratives. That's where their life happens. I I also don't think it's particularly gray. But you talk about how jokes reflect this confluence of old and new attitudes, in particular towards women, ethnic minorities, particularly Jews, and religious belief as the Soviet state tries to rapidly change these cultural norms. How does this happen? What kind of jokes do we get? And what does this tell us about what people actually think?
1: Yeah, big questions. Um, Jokes are often a a site for negotiation in times of change where where, where we're faced with uncertain circumstances, we tend to make a joke to try and get a handle on it and to feel a bit better about it. Um, Jokes often happen at a site of friction, essentially. Um, But then when uh, people are trying to, to, to just follow on the religious point, I guess that I noticed that religion appeared quite a lot in jokes. But oddly enough, it didn't often seem to be in conflict with the new status quo. It was more in the background. So, an example be a, a, let's, if the character varies, but let's say um, that it's Lenin and he, he's dead. He tries to go up into heaven to the pearly gates and he's not allowed in. So, he despondently wanders away. And then a stranger comes up and says, uh, What's going on? He's like, well, I can't, I can't get into heaven. The stranger says, "Don't worry, I'll help you." Jump in this sack. The stranger goes up to the pearly gates and says, "Hey, have you got marks in there?" They're like, "Yeah, we do." And then he hurls the sack with Lenin inside over the walls, over the gates, and says, "Well, here's his trash." Now it's kind of, or here's his, here's his dividends is another, <laughs> another version. Um, it's a joke that's essentially suggesting that Lenin is, is a, a crappy version, a crappy inheritor of Marx's legacy. And the comment isn't really at all about the fact that there's all this religion in there. Like why is Marx in heaven as an atheist? And why is Lenin trying to get into heaven? So in, in jokes like this, you get a sense that religion is still the stage or the backdrop, which informs many people's sense of how the world is. It's just there. It's not something that's, say, in these examples being pushed to the fore. It's like, this is our frame of reference, this is how we understand life. And its persistence um, kind of plays out here and suggests these values are still in play, but it doesn't mean they have to be an antagonistic conflict. Um, and another assumption that, that comes in that it's kind of uh, was strange. I, I spoke to Seth Graham about this. He wrote uh, a brilliant book about uh, Anecdoti from a more um, literary perspective and for a later period, that's called uh, Resonant Dissonance, uh, which is a beautiful title too, um, is the figure of the Jew in uh, Soviet humour of this period. Because Jews turn up a lot and yet they seem to be a stock character, that the Jew is the likely avatar very often, who seems to be the hero of the story. So it's the, we could say that some of the characteristics that they're given appear to be um, potentially anti-Semitic and that they seem to be very cunning. But cunning in uh, Russian folklore is actually a very positive characteristic. This idea of having the the smarts to be able to get what you actually want. So Jews are everywhere in these jokes and yet they're also interchangeable that the same joke will turn up again and again, but not necessarily with a Jew in the role. So at first there's, I had this sense that w- what is happening? Is this covertly anti-Semitic? But significantly uh, that didn't seem to be the case. Often the, the, uh, the Jew character is the hero of the story. Um, you mentioned uh, women too. The way that women are portrayed in the majority of um, jokes that I found, uh, they're kind of wallpaper they don't they're only in there because they're going to be deemed ridiculous or mocked or they appear f- to create sexual problems like with stalin catching the crabs that we mentioned earlier and it seems like this is i would have expected that there would be more jokes of men very unhappy about the changing status of women since the 1920s so i suspect that this casting of women is more of a backlash um, against this notion of a more emancipated woman. Um, But what was more interesting when it came to the uh, gender distinctions is that amongst all the criminal case files that I read, which was towards 300, um, I I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think around only five percent of them were women who uh, were actually put away for telling anti-Soviet jokes in all of the other sources that I found, women were just as well represented telling exactly the same sorts of jokes. The only ones they're not telling are ones that are particularly cruel and uh, overly sexualized portrayals of women. You know, unsurprisingly, women probably wouldn't want to tell those jokes or find them funny. But they, they tell as intense or brutal or perverse jokes as the men do. So it seemed the story here was more that Women were treated as being less answerable for saying these things, I think, because the regime did not take them as politically seriously, um, which rather fits with uh, things uh, that Lynn Viola wrote about the way that women were treated during the collectivization period. That they were, even if they were wrong, they were deemed too politically immature for their uh, views and poor actions to be taken seriously. They're infantilized in this way. So, In a sense, that helped women, I think, get away with telling jokes without as severe consequences. Um, But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that they couldn't be severely reprimanded and punished at a level uh, that would seriously impact their everyday lives, even if it didn't mean that they were being sent to the gulag.
0: So how dangerous was it for people to tell politically critical jokes?
1: Mm, um, It depends on when you ask. So what I found looking through the the criminal files were that in line with general waves of uh, repression, of crackdowns on people saying critical things, because remember jokes are interpreted as being anti-Soviet agitation. Um, and the regime's actually very worried about this. There's, uh, at a certain point in, in the mid-1930s, I think it's 1935, um, jokes are specifically stated uh as being on a par with the spreading of state secrets in the same document. It says to uh, people working in the court system, you cannot quote the jokes in court documents because the regime seemed to turn from fearing that jokes were a weapon that could be used to damage them to thinking that jokes were a mind virus that only the very most trusted personnel could even be allowed to see because perhaps if they saw them, they would end up becoming carriers and transmit it to other people. So in in the early 1930s, before that intense shift, it seemed to be possible to tell jokes more openly. However, um, in line with crackdowns after Kirov's murder, and then 1937-38 mass repressions, and then it loosens up a bit, and then come... uh, as we come towards the outbreak of war, things tighten up again. But the, the big problem here is that the, the regime I found in the, in the sources was practicing retroactive justice. So when people told jokes, they might, it was very difficult for them to know the real risk that they were taking. They knew that they were doing something that was risky to an extent, but if they said something in 1932 that kind of flirted with the borders of acceptability and they judged that correct, um, it comes round to post-Kirov death and things have tightened up, and if people remember that the person had told this joke in 1932, that becomes uh, a much more serious offence, and I like to think of it as being, as though, if we think of like playing tennis, a sport, Every shot that you hit on the line that was declared in previously, it's as though we changed the rules and every game that you played before is now being judged as though the court was much smaller. Um, So it's not that people are necessarily uh, trying to hit the ball so far out, it's more that the goalposts or the lines of acceptability are being repeatedly changed.
0: I see some of that in my own work. I followed a, a MTS director who got arrested in 36 for jokes he had told in 32 during, that he had learned during a trip to Moscow about how Stalin was unpopular with Krupskaya and also about how collective farmers should stage some sort of revolution because there was no food on the collective farm. I assume they didn't quote the exact joke because neither one of those things seemed exactly funny, but two of the guys, I guess he had told them to in his apartment in 1932, claimed to remember them and then dimed him out to the NKVD.
1: Yeah, that's how it could happen. And the most common sentence that I came across was, uh, 10 years sent to the Gulag, then in the most intense times that could be 25 years. And I even found a couple of, uh, instances where, uh, people were shot but 10 years seemed to be the most common sentence.
0: This fellow looked like he got 10 years, but I'm not sure he ever made it out of the prison camp because his daughter appealed for his rehabilitation in 1956 under Khrushchev. Yeah.
1: And another, another part uh, that they could be punished under would be article 5811, uh, which is being part of a, uh, an anti-Soviet uh, counter-revolutionary group and that In practice, when I dug into the case files, tended to mean they told jokes to other people who laughed and shared some jokes in return.
0: Did you ever find any examples of these sentences being commuted in 38 or 39? Because I have found at the district level, several people who were charged with being Trotskyists, some of them were never actually convicted, but they were stripped of their party membership and thrown out at the organizations. But by 39, they're rehabilitated either through court um, appeals or because the political atmosphere in the Soviet Union has changed and it was considered excess to have gone after them in this way and a lot of these men by 1939 or 1940 are actually back in positions of power. Did you manage to track any of your joke tellers that far and see if any of them were later pardoned or commuted?
1: Um, most of the pardoning that, that stands out tends to happen later into the 50s and 60s and some people are even uh, being pardoned in the 1990s the it's still a stain on their record. There were, I think, a handful of cases, though I, I don't I can't remember the details, they're in in the footnotes for that chapter where people were let off and rehabilitated um in the later 1930s, but that seemed to be um pretty rare. It's uh but I know the patterns that you're talking about because say if you're a Comsomol member or a party member and you told these jokes it seems as though, say for Comsomol members, they were more likely to be let off. They might be thrown out of the Comsomol, but maybe let back in relatively soon. And if you were a party member, up until um, the later 1930s, it wasn't so uncommon that people would repeatedly be removed from the party and then readmitted back and forth.
0: Yeah. I don't know if these guys would have been prosecuted later, but most of them didn't survive the war. So I really can't tell if the pardoning in 1939 was temporary or not because they all died in the war. Um, so why do people continue to tell jokes, even though they've started to notice that they do have dire consequences?
1: Yeah. Um, in part, I think the answer is what, what I just said that they don't necessarily know the, the extent of the risk that they're taking, but I think also telling jokes, I said before, it's fundamentally human, and there's been studies of the uh, of humour treating it as a key part of the human condition right back to Aristotle and even earlier, as far as we can possibly see. Um, and it's widely agreed, whilst no one's able to pin down a whole overarching theory of all of humour, it's understood to be something that is a key uh, psychological and social thing amongst us. So it's not surprising people would continue to do this but there are particular benefits that it can bring even in especially in these harsh circumstances one part is the the gallows humor effect where you make a joke about a terrible situation that you can't change but you manage to laugh about your sheer powerlessness Um, there's a sense of relief that comes from that that you could even if you're on your way to the gallows you know you're going to be hanged and you look up at the uh, the sky and say, oh, it looks like we're going to have a nice day later. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. But the thing is that when you take something frightening and uncontrollable and you put it into a genre where it doesn't have to make sense, where absurd things merit laughter, we're able at least for a moment to change how we feel about it. So it's, I think of it as a placebo that objectively, it shouldn't make any difference, but subjectively, it can make all the difference in the world. Um, George Orwell said, Uh, Or wrote that every joke is a tiny revolution Um, but my take is I think it's actually something much more important than that that making a joke against the expected and repressive um, expectations the situation that you're in if you make a joke about it then you're asserting something about who you are I'm here I can think although I can't do anything about it, I'm not going to just follow your version of events and toe the line. It's, uh, I, I think of it as basically, I joke, therefore I am. I offer proof to myself of my own existence by uh, asserting a different version, even for a moment, of this reality. Um, and another part of, of this is that people share these jokes with each other. Um I mean, joking is an extremely social element, and that's partly how gallows humor works too, that you are reassured that the frightening thing is maybe not so frightening because other people laugh along with you. And jokes continue to help draw people together.
0: So what does joke telling... On you go. Sorry. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to tell when people are talking. So what do jokes tell us about the way ordinary people interacted during the Stalinist period, because you have this long-standing idea that people were atomized, that they were terrorized, cut off from any sort of social tie by this fear that they were going to be drug hmm. away into the night.
1: Yeah. Hannah Arendt casts a long shadow, as does uh, Pavlik Morozov in this, this idea that under Stalin, it's man as wolf to man and kids are denouncing parents and spouses are denouncing each other. And those things definitely happened. Um, but I think that it's pretty far from the typical story. Instead, in the um, that that story is actually being reinforced because in memoirs and in the Harvard Project interviews, there's this peculiar cognitive dissonance going on that these people would repeat: you couldn't trust anyone. And they would say society was atomized. And then they would go on to tell stories about how, of course, they trusted their old school friends, their friends and their family and many of their workmates, and they could say anything with them. And their key proof of that level of trust was the fact that they could tell jokes with them. It's like the litmus test of true friendship. So although they could believe that society itself was atomized in their own lives, they would make careful person by person judgments and often use um, a hint of humour as a way to potentially start um, a new trust relationship with somebody. Um, and then the, the fact that you could share this dangerous material, this mind virus, was an incredible token of trust um, and helped to draw people together and not feel so alone and share the burden of the psychological pressure that they were under. And this, this is quite a lot like um, the field called disaster sociology where there's a general belief that we hold, as do governments and police forces, that if an earthquake happens, if uh, Hurricane Katrina hits, people will go feral and loot, and it will become this Hobbesian nightmare. But in reality, all the sociology shows that that's not what happens. Some people will act like that, but the vast majority will help each other, and they don't do it for personal benefit so much as it's, they do it for human connection and mutual assistance. Um, And their lives, they'll even look back on these periods, even if they lost loved ones, as periods where their lives had the greatest meaning and purpose. And so my sense is that that's what I found within the trust groups in which jokes could be shared, that society was certainly fractured, and they faced immense challenges and trauma. But this is not a society of Winston Smiths, who live in isolation in their their cell-like rooms. It's a society of relatively small trust groups.
0: Was it hard finding these trust groups since by the nature of your sources, you tend to deal mostly with the people who got caught and whose trust group failed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was a big hole in the PhD, um, the, that I did. And, but that's where the Harvard project really came into its own, where there people talked at great length about who they could trust, how they made those distinctions, and then. They would frequently talk about how jokes were the thermometer of that trust or how you could begin to tell if someone was a true friend, someone you could allow to yourself to share the most meaningful conversations with by how they would be able to first smile if maybe you just raised an eyebrow at a statement that you found ridiculous, and they could work their way up bit by bit to just reeling out anecdotally. So that sort of space, which is still significantly underused because it was very hard to use before it was digitized. And there was a stigma around it because it was funded by the US Air Force. So I think a lot of people were suspicious that it was going to be pure propaganda. Actually, it's one of the most fascinating and, and from the project publications, one of the most nuanced readings of Soviet society that I think is out there. It was decades before its time.
0: So what do you think is the most important takeaway from your book?
1: Yeah, um, I guess time will tell. <laughs> it's for others to decide. I feel like for, so- for historians of Soviet uh, Russia or the Soviet Union, um, I think maybe it's the suggestion that when we look at people having contradictory and complex views in these periods, we can try to look at how those things were complex, try and understand the patterns people were finding in, in the cross-hatching, rather than thinking these people are pro, these people are anti the regime because every individual person has a multiplicity of different views and they could change from moment to moment. And it's useful for us historians to look at how they wrestle with the contradictions with their emotions and jokes are a really good way of where that dynamic is playing out. So I feel the point there is don't treat these people in the past as so different from ourselves, because nowhere in the world can a population be simply or cleanly divided into absolute opponents or absolute supporters of a regime or an ideology or a way of life. Um, and like I said before, that doesn't mean they live in this featureless gray zone. The zone is actually full of the richest colors of life, which is what I've tried to bring out in this book. And for maybe a broader audience, I think the story that I tried to tell in this book, it's not the overt argument, perhaps, but I hope that it's what comes through. It's an effort to to make extraordinary times more understandable at a human level because people coped and made sense of those times in ways that we find very familiar. And it's often quite disturbing how familiar it is. That, Like you said earlier, why is this a surprise? I think, well, it shouldn't be a surprise, but we've come to think of it as surprising that people act in familiar ways even when the stakes are raised to incredibly... Uh, intimidating heights. Um, Joking helps us to adapt to anything over time and that's good news and that's bad news because it's great to know that we can adapt to anything over time but it should remind us that if humour can normalise things which we really shouldn't accept then when we use humour in our everyday lives today and maybe when we're telling jokes about Trump we shouldn't think of it we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're making some defiant act of resistance which is going to have political consequences it may be that it's enabling us to accommodate ourselves to a reality that we cannot change or are not changing
0: well thank you very much john for talking with us about this really interesting book are you working on any new projects now
1: um, I am not working on, uh, any new academic projects for the time being. Um, I'm off to do other things, uh, with my life. So I have also written about war crimes, trials and investigations, very different and not very funny. Um, but yep, no new research projects for me for the time being.
0: Escaping academia is also something worthwhile.
1: <laughs> well. I guess I, phr- I phrased it that way because I, <laughs> I think it's something that uh, when, you, when you're talking to an audience, perhaps who are very invested in something, I don't want it to sound like a, an act of rejection. It's more that there's some other things that I would like to go and do.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on our podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate it.
0: Okay.